to grant the public access to public lands. So we're, we're blessed in British Columbia with a vast public land space. And mm-hmm. it's an amazing province where every corner you turn, it's absolutely gorgeous. So access is pretty important. And everything else that we do in the association is to support that primary objective, public access to public lands and our advocacy. Are you into four-wheeling camping and exploring? How about off-road racing like mud bogs, short course wheel-to-wheel racing, or even desert races? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to 4 Before Canada podcast. My name is Wes, and I've been four-wheeling since I was six weeks old. I have over 20 years' experience in 4x4 shops, many more than that in the off-road racing, and a lifetime of exploring the backcountry across Canada. Every week, we bring you a new guest where they give you their perspective on the industry. We discuss everything from four-wheeling, overlanding, every form of off-road racing across this great country, as well as we talk to Canadian manufacturers and 4x4 shops. Just a quick reminder that if you're looking for more episodes, you can find all of our episodes on 4x4CanadaPodcast.com or your favorite podcast sharing platform. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at 4x4CanadaPodcast.com. Now let's get to the show. Our guest today has a long history of working with four-wheelers and other outdoor groups to help keep public access open to public lands. Kim Reeves, welcome to the 4x4 Canada podcast. Hey, Wes, thanks for having me. Many people know you as the president of the Four-Wheel Drive Association of BC for over 10 years now. We've got so much to discuss about the association, and we'll get to that real quick. However, there's something I want to get out in the open right from the beginning. You have a sickness. You're ill. This addiction to Toyota Land Cruisers is conflicting. It can be expensive. However, it's what brings you pleasure and has introduced you to so many new friends. How many Land Cruisers do you currently have? (laughs) Is your wife around? (laughs) She's uh, she's complicit. I I would say like seven, but I do have parts vehicles as well to support that because oddly enough, the Land cruisers that we got into to be in the beginning were 24 volt rigs. And it's hard to come mm-hmm. by 24 volt electronics because the last they were sold here in Canada was 1987. So way back when parked trucks were cheap, you know, you could pick up a, a rusted out Hulk with all the electronics in it for, you know, 400 bucks. So I got a couple of those just to have parts on the shelf. I know you've got a couple really nice ones. Do you still have the red one, red and white? What's typically known as the Iron Pig? The Iron Pig, I yeah. still have it. Uh, 1971 FJ55, Toyota Land Cruiser out of Abilene, Texas. It was a ranch truck for, I think, two different ranches, about 7,000 miles each. And then the last, there's only 19,000 and change in miles on it right now. Wow. And the, the rest was put on in the last 20 years, I guess, kind of in very small bits here and there across North America. But it currently resides. That's a beautiful rig. Yeah. yeah. Those in the Toyota Land Cruiser community would know it as Wilbur. So that's the nickname I was trying to think of. And then you've got your daily or one that you use most often. And what, what's that one? Yeah. My original truck was an HJ60, but I. Did a body frame swap in 2010, so it's a, an HJ62 with some 61 series stuff merged into it. So <laughs> but my 60 series is my, I've had that truck for over 20 years, and it's my daily and my backcountry RV, as I call it. My wife 
has, I guess, an FJ80, but it also has a, a six-cylinder turbo diesel in it, so it's a lovely truck. And So how, how did you get into the Land Cruisers? I know you grew up on the East Coast. Did you grow up in a four-wheeling family, or is this something that happened when you moved out to the best part of the, the country? Yeah, this is when I moved out best, or out west. No, I didn't grow up in a four-wheel drive family, you know, it's more hobby farm and driving tractors and things like that. There's some muscle car addiction in my family, where my oldest brother had a 71 Super B, so that was an interesting car. And when I moved out nice. west, I was into the motorsports, more NHRA, IHBA, the hot boats, stuff like that, drag stuff. And then after having family and kids, I guess it was right around 2000 that we ended up buying a, a Land Cruiser. Oddly enough, you know, I thought there would be interesting and my wife agreed. So <laughs> we, were, we were on the same page <laughs> and we ended up buying this old rusty truck. That's what started it all. Yeah, it was downhill so, from there. <laughs> exactly. So you joined the Coastal Cruisers, which is a BC-based Land Cruiser club. And you're involved with them, I guess, for a few years. And that introduced you to the Four-Wheel Drivers Association of BC? Exactly. Yeah. Joined the Cruisers in 06, I think. Great club is still a member. Although it's kind of evolved from a 4 by 4 club into a a custom car club because Land Cruisers have changed quite a bit between the, the last 15, <laughs> 20 years. As soon as I became a member, I became aware of the Four-Wheel Drive Association and recognized the need for it, then volunteered to be the club liaison to the Four-Wheel Drive Association. So I kind of bring information back and forth. And then yep. I went, made the mistake of going to a meeting and immediately ended up on the board. <laughs> that was 09. I was secretary for a year. And then since 2010, I've been president. So this is my seventh go around, I think, as president. Teen years. Yeah. 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 So not all of our listeners know much about the Four-Wheel Drive Association of BC. You know, we have a lot of listeners on the other side of the Rockies. What's the association about? Let's hear your elevator pitch about the association. Against gates going up and four gates to come down to grant the public access to public lands. So we're, we're blessed in British Columbia with a vast public land space. And it's an amazing province where every corner you turn, it's absolutely gorgeous. So access is pretty important. And everything else that we do in the association is to support that primary objective, public access to public lands and our advocacy. So we do some recreation site management around the province. So old wilderness recreation sites or forestry sites, as they used to be called. Yeah, we've got probably 15 to 20 of those in our portfolio where their members go on a day trip and take care of these sites free for public use. So it's just good public works for public benefit type stuff. As you know, you were involved in us adopting the fire tower from BC Parks. And that's our third fire tower in our portfolio. Yeah. But first with BC Park. So I believe that's BC Park's first partnership agreement with a motorized group, if I understand correctly. That's my understanding as well, too. Yeah. And we'll we'll get into that one in a second. The association is definitely growing in the last, you know, five, six years. And and I don't know how much of that is based for social media or whatever, but 
the association, what's the membership up around now? I believe our membership is around 4,500 paid members. That's great. I remember back in the 90s, before I moved back east, that we were lucky to have 50 members <laughs> at that time. And the association, you know, just to explain to the listeners, the association has been around since 1977. And it's had a lot of ups and it's had a few downs as well. And the great volunteers have really brought it up in the last eight years, 10 years, have brought the uh, the membership up. What is some of the reasons, like if somebody's thinking, you know, maybe I should join, what, I'm trying to think of how to word this properly, but what is some of the reasons that somebody should join the association and become involved in the association? Well, it's a good question. There's many reasons. There's tilted <laughs> reasons. There's reasons that help other people. There are reasons that help people you'll never meet. Like I say, with the recreation site adoption, you know, these are free sites. Our members and volunteers go and take care of them and make them decent for people that are coming and they don't know. We have kids programs where we take kids that may have never been in a motor vehicle, let alone a four by four now with the changing of the ways things are, especially in the cities. Yep. Kids out for a day in the backcountry. I remember we did a, a picnic for families and kids in 2019, just before COVID. And I was standing there cooking away at the barbecue and watching, you know, like there's 20 kids and probably 20 adults and they're all playing around. And I saw some kids building a raft. <laughs> and, you know, these are things that I hadn't seen in ages. Folks making up games, talking to each other, you know, a lot of fun. And it was mid-afternoon, I noticed nobody had a phone in their hand. And I thought, you know, there's big value here. And I can't put my finger on it because you can't measure these things without an economic value, right? But yep. there's something there, you know, kids play, making a raft. Like, anyway. Like, Who does um, that in 2019, right? <laughs> well, indeed. Like, this is a great thing. I, I was, that's what yep. I thought when I was watching it. There are uh, cleanup events if people want to make a difference, making, you know, mitigating the impact of some of our less caring members of society. On the selfish side, you can, you get member benefits, advantages at buying parts or things at some of our corporate members. There are so many different reasons. There's take advantage of learning how to drive off-road or recover in our uh, Wheeling Wisely off-road driving and recovery programs. Yeah, we built it for the last five years. I did forget to mention it earlier, but and we'll put it in show notes, but people can check out the 4wdabc.ca. Thank you. And as well as there's numerous groups on Facebook as well, and there's the main one, the Floral Dress Association BC group, but there's also subgroups based on the different areas. So, you know, Squamish or the Thompson Nicola, the Okanagan up north, et cetera. And that was brought on to help so that some of the talk, say, from Prince George didn't get lost in the talk down the coast, et cetera. So if it's a good idea to check out your local group as well. And you'll find a lot more of information about what's happening on in your area. You asked me about Facebook and social media, whether they, that was driving our growth. Mm-hmm. I would have to say, yes, it does. It was interesting in the forum world. We, we never really got a lot of traction in the forum world. Discussions always seem to happen in the clubs or the vehicle-specific forums because people are really looking for two things. They're looking for tech on their vehicle, and they were looking to go on a trail run. Right. These are the the two things that really killed the brick-and-mortar clubs because they're tech, 
and their trail runs went online. So the forums were the first to kill the brick and mortar clubs and then social media killed the forums. So yep. we yep. benefited from adopting Facebook extremely early. We jumped in, I think in about 2011 with both feet. And we were on Facebook long before all the wheelers were on Facebook. And <laughs> as, as the world changed and social media took over, we were the first stop for wheelers. So that got us more, more eyes on us. And then we were able to sell, or I guess show the value of a membership. So yep. when I took over in 2010, I think we were down to about 30 members. And, you know, we had big growth for a lot of years, you know, 80% a year, year over year for a lot of years. Yep. And, and then some plateaus when we're trying to sort out what all this growth meant and the work in the background. And then, and then COVID hit and we, we grew crazy. We almost doubled. Wow. And now we're still trying to catch up with that bump. So yeah, there's definitely some learning curves happening, whether it be membership or clothing, et cetera. And it's just learning curves, unfortunately. At, and you're dealing with volunteers and everybody has day jobs. Well, and when you have a volunteer organization that aspires to represent the wheelers in a province the size of British Columbia, which is bigger than France and Germany combined yeah. on a volunteer budget. So we don't have no paid staff and we aspire to do all that. It's essentially impossible, Wes. I, I've thought about this numerous times. Everything that we're accomplishing is really close to impossible. Mm -hmm. They bring all kinds of challenges. But on the flip side, we have a lot of success, a lot of successes to, to make it all worthwhile. And we've got an amazing crew of volunteers, you know, yourself included, that are, you know, the, the foundation of what this organization is. And it's just all these people are taking care of things in their own locales that things that should be done. And we happen to be lucky enough to be able to provide a vehicle to accomplish it. Pardon the pun. Yeah. I think it definitely stands to the, to the volunteers of what the association has done in the last five, 10 years, we'll hop right into some of those rec sites and the fire lookouts and yeah, basically all those rec sites you got across BC. There's everything from Chetwind to stuff happening on the island to stuff happening on East Kootenays to, you know, right in the middle in the Okanagan and Thompson Nicola region. There's always lots of talk about Stave Lake down at the coast. I'm an interior guy and I don't like mud. So I don't really know much about Stave, but I hear a lot about it. What's it all about? And what's the association's involvement with what's going on there? Stave Lake. Well, Stave Lake is ironically where I cut my teeth in this organization. <laughs> it, it, it was the biggest, it's the largest motorized recreation area in the province with the highest concentration of four by four vehicles and four by four recreation in the province. And it was kind of smeared with the reputation of a whole amalgam of things that were occurring from garbage dumping, which is being close to a, a urban population. You have some residents that dump garbage. You've got some commercial guys that dump garbage and then you've got shooting waste and you've got drug lab waste and you've got garden waste and clippings and invasive species. So, and, yeah. and then the party waste happens, right? And then you've got illegal shooting and then you've got Kids that would, I guess, criminals actually, that would steal cars, go 
beat the hell out of them and then set them on fire. Yeah. You've got people that would show up a Friday night and have a big pallet fire and piss up. And then you had motorized recreation, you know, quads, dirt bikes, four by fours, kids learning how to quad or dirt bike, lots yep. of family motorized recreation, right? Stuff that, you know, you and I grew up with. No yep. day, good stuff. Yep. So we were really tainted by all of these other things happening. And over the period of 2009 through, geez, 2019, it was a lot of meetings just trying to hold back the closure of that area. It never seemed possible. You know, it was quite common to be in a room in a public meeting or, or a, a strategy meeting and there'd be 17 people against motorized and me, right? And tough to navigate your way through that. And especially yep. as a rookie, which I was no rookie at the end of it, I tell you that. <laughs> but uh, we managed to keep it. So what is, what are the mudflats at State Lake? Absolutely amazing area where there's the biggest of the mud trucks to everybody that just likes to try their vehicle in mud. It's really popular. I hate mud too. And a Land Cruiser guy <laughs> on the website, I hate mud. It's one of the classics, but uh, yeah, it's worked out well. We even have a partnership agreement on the recreation site on the mud flat. So from in the summertime, the flats are covered with water and you've got glamping, you know, regular campsite stuff and no yep. real motorized recreation on the flats because they're covered in water. So we take it over like end of September. And we give it back prior to May long when the flats are exposed and it's a, a definite win-win. So, yeah, I've seen a lot of videos and like you say, there'd be anything from the big mud trucks, big four, 44s or even bigger, you know, some of the, the mega trucks and that right out to people running around on quads or stock Toyota pickup or a Suzuki Samurai or whatever. And, and I have to admit, it does look like a lot of fun. And I know that the association has spent a lot of time working with other organizations in that area to try and keep that open. And I would definitely say that is a win in your guys' book. It's a, it's huge, a never ending struggle, but I'd count that one as a win for sure. It, if the we fact don't count that, it as know, a win, I don't know what a win is. <laughs> exactly. As you know, I've been involved in the association for a number of years. And Long the one thing that I'm seeing now is that through the work of all the hard working volunteers over the years is before you go into a meeting and they hear, Oh, you're a four before guy. And they almost turn your back on you kind of idea. Now you walk in and there's a certain amount of respect. And that's because of things like Stave Lake. That's because of the fire lookouts. That's because of all the rec sites that the association has and all the hard work the volunteers have. Everybody sees the Full Drive Association BC on social media and that, but what they don't see is the amount of respect that we have gathered from not only government employees, but also other organizations, even hiking organizations and things like that. There's a certain amount of respect now that we have that wasn't always there. And that's just because of all the hard work of the volunteers. Yeah, it, it is. It is a, there's a lot of things behind that. As an organization, we've always really gone hard on being respectful in all of our communications, whether online or in, in person. I think 
I think they're all the same. And I've always conducted myself that way. And I always try to encourage others to as well. And that goes for meetings too. We're respectful, but we're also assertive. You know, we have every (laughs) right to exist. We're good people. You know, four wheelers are good people, just like every recreation group is populated by good people. Sure, there's a couple of bad apples, but that's true in every rec organization, every nonprofit, every, I mean, even citizens in our country and inner city, you know, we all see the same things. So it's not a recreation discipline problem. It's a, it's a population problem. Yeah. So once you get over that and you realize you build a relationship with somebody and, you know, it's harder to be dismissive of somebody that you know, you know their name, you know that they're decent and honest and kind and respectful and considerate, you know, it, it's a much better starting place than, than you guys in those trucks, right? I've seen it myself here with the Camels 404 Club and then later more work with the Four-Wheel Drive Association of BC, but I remember going to a cleanup done by the Naturalist Club and we were winching out vehicles from ravines and stuff like that. And with the amount of garbage that we took out, they were just blindsided by it kind of almost. And they end up coming to our cleanups, coming to help us kind of idea and exactly. work in that partnership back and forth. That was exactly and, what I had in mind when I was talking with. So is that exactly yeah, simple? It, so I appreciate you bringing it up. So there's a couple different programs that the association has done. You know, you mentioned Gates earlier and how much you dislike Gates. But there's a couple programs where the association is using Gates in a positive way. Let's talk about Eagle. Eagle Mountain is an area that's just above the old Westwood Plateau Raceway in uh, British Columbia. A long-time motorized area. Now it's filled with mansions, and we drive through those and into the, the trail system just behind that. It's short, but it has always been a sweet trail. So it used to be like a, an intermediate-style four by four trail that we lost access to in around 2000 and by a gate and we didn't have legitimate access until 2010 when we finally got access back through a key program led by city of Coquitlam you know there had been bypasses created of course underneath hydro lines to access into this trail system so it's kind of a cat and mouse game that develops when a gate goes up yeah So after 10 years of no access, many parties came together to deal with, well, seeing what we could do about regaining access. And it was complicated because there was, I think there were six parties to that conversation. You know, there was Ministry of Forests, there was BC Hydro, there was BC Parks, there was Metro Vancouver, the golf course, City of Coquitlam. There's a watershed in there for a reservoir, and then there was us, so I guess that's six or seven, that resulted in a key access program. So we had physical keys for years and went through lock problems and lock disappearing and weld the lock to the gate, and that all worked fairly well until 2017-18 when it was discovered, I guess, the road was never decommissioned properly. There was a number of things that went on, and it resulted in the Ministry of Forests getting the road recommissioned to decommission it properly. <laughs> so they had to build a road to then to remove the road, as odd as that sounds. 
and it looked like we were going to lose access through that process, but we were fortunate enough to, I guess, appeal to reason, and we got key access going again. We had a Bluetooth lock, and then the city of Kulum didn't want to do that anymore, and, and we kind of reluctantly took over the program. Mm-hmm. Why I say reluctantly is we go back to our very beginning of this conversation. I said we're access advocates, and that's what we're a reason for existence and public access to public land. So if we manage a gate, the only people that we can really efficiently allow are members through some kind of a system. So obviously that is in favor of our members and not so much in the general public. So right. We, as a last ditch, as we took on the the management of that gate, it's not it's not what we advocate for. However, faced with no access or manage the access, we chose to manage the access. So yeah, I think it's a matter of picking the best of the of two bad options. <laughs> exactly, that's where we were, and so now we're going to try to make the best of it. You know, we'll take our warts online and in the public because. It does disagree a bit with our core mandate. Not a bit. It just, it does disagree with it. And I acknowledge that. However, the best of the two bad options. So we're going to make lemonade with that one and to try to make it a, so our goal is to make it a decent intermediate trail again. And uh, I guess it's three years now under, with COVID, things kind of blur. I don't know exactly how to pinpoint in time. I'm losing it, Wes. It's about three years now. So we'll, we'll be making requests to start adding obstacles. So be nice. You know, it, it, it's a hot, heavy rainfall zone. So we have to be careful about water and water movement and things like that. But we're pretty confident we can start building some more obstacles in there to bring some excitement back to intermediate wheeling in that area. Yeah. It's a, isn't it a bit of a difficult, like, isn't it a, like a 35s and locker already? Or is it, is that, is, I may think of something else. Yeah. So that was the criteria. So this takes me back many years to sitting <laughs> and they said, okay, what kind of criteria should we have to access? And at that time there was a pretty serious gatekeeping obstacle. Okay. Gnarly rock. And you couldn't avoid it because the, the bypass had kind of eroded away as well so and it's on a shelf road with a cliff on well rock face on one side and a cliff on the other so if you're going through you're committed to dealing with the obstacle itself yeah and so i i went and i thought about it like how do you make a criteria because so as you know so much of this is driver dependent and you know how good are you picket lines and you know, one guy's 35 and lockers is another guy's 33s and open, you know, and that depends on yep. the vehicle and departure angle. Wheelbase and brake over yep. and, you know, all, yeah, exactly. All the things with the vehicle. Yep. So that's what I got down to. Simple criteria, 33s <laughs> and lockers. And no, 33s and 12 inches of clearance, actually. I think that's what is it that was. that what it was? Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then also at your own risk, Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's any kind of, we've just carried that forward. Right. Yeah. Okay. So as we know, the full drive association of BC encompasses all of BC. Let's move north. We've got some rec sites up in Chetwind area. And also the first five kilometers or so of the Alexander McKenzie Trail. 
let's talk about that Alexander McKenzie Trail. It's a significantly historical trail in BC. What can you tell our listeners about that? Well, we were honored to have the opportunity to adopt and partner on such a historic trail. The Alexander McKenzie Trail, or the New Hulk Carrier Grease Trail, is a trail that dates back before, long before any written record and well into the verbal record of First Nations. And this is the trail that Alexander McKenzie first traversed to reach the Pacific Ocean in these, I should have looked it up, 18-something. <laughs> long time <laughs> A long ago. time ago. <laughs> yeah. And it's there used to be a, a wreck site right on the banks of the Fraser and the Blackwater River, very close to there. And this is where apparently McKenzie stepped out of the river and then carried on to the Pacific on foot. So we adopted that site in, I think that one's 2019 as well. I think Again, so. Again, though, I'm, I'm looking through the blurred period of COVID. <laughs> and, but we're dealing with some issues there because the, the bank at 0K on the Fraser, it's on a, on a bend of the river and it's slumping uh, fairly extensively near the end of that road and it threatens the wreck site. So we're still looking at whether we can recover the use of the old wreck site or whether we have to make other options and other plans there. Right. This is on our list of forays into aliation too, is, you know, should talking before it's happening, which is probably really bad form. But <laughs> we we need to start building relationships with local First Nations. And as I mentioned, the New Hulk Carrier Grease Trail, this is where Ulich and Greece was traded from the ocean, the coast, to inland neighboring nations. So, you know, it's it's fairly significant spot. That's what's happening there. Yeah, there was a wreck a lot of history site there. was at the two or three K mark, I think, that was refurbished and remaintained two years ago. And so we're doing what we can there right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, that, that, yeah, the Chetwind area, there's a few new ones up there. And then same thing in what, 2019 or 2020 that I know we've gotten two or three up there as well. And Great. I have to admit that's an area I want to visit. I haven't been up there and that's on my list of visit up north. Well, you're in luck because I believe there's some maintenance work going on next summer. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> just had to drop that in the Windfall book, book Creek. At the same time. Yeah, Windfall Creek is one. I think it was, you're right, 2018 or 19, we adopted that. My wife and I, on a trip back from Manitoba in 2019, we stopped in and assisted Leah McQueen, our local rep, and yep. the local volunteers on a work party on that site, a beautiful spot. And Boulder Creek, I think not too far away from Windfall Creek, is up a pretty good four by four trail, I hear, is another site. And I believe that came online just last year. So we had our first work party up there in summer 2022. Yeah. So quite exciting to have nice. those sites on board because, you know, it's easy to say. We want to be regional. We want to cover all the province, but it's a, a whole different thing to try to, like I say, a province as big as BC to, to cover all the regions and everything in this province is driven in our organization is driven by locals yep. and you know, the big four wheel drive association and you know, me, some guy in the lower mainland, we can support the local, the locals who know their issues. And that's really the 
kind of format that we're working with. Yeah, definitely. The the latest addition to the long list of rec sites is Three Sisters rec site near Ashcroft, which is the at the base of Cornwall Mountain, which we have the maintenance contract for the Cornwall fire lookout. So as you know, we just signed recently the maintenance contract for that one. So that's a neat little one. It's a small rec site, rated right basic Cornwall, which as soon as our contact in BC Parks heard that there's an opening or they wanted somebody to maintain that. And she instantly thought of the Full Drive Association. She said it just ties right in together. So not only do we have the fire lookout co- with contract with BC Parks, which, as you mentioned earlier, is the first BC Parks have had with a motorized group, but we also have a three-way partnership with the sites and trails for the rec site down at Three Sisters. So it's a sites and trail and BC parks and full drive association and of BC partnership on this together. So it took a year and a half, almost two years to get that contract going and signed. And that just goes to show that people, it's not just as simple as walking in and saying, Hey, we want to maintain this. It's that building of relationships. It's that government red tape. It's, you know, 18 people looking at a contract and, you know, making one change. It's got to go back through the whole cycle again. And, and, but yeah, pretty, pretty happy to say that we do have that three sisters rec site and it's, it's, it's a neat tie in with Cornwall for sure. So I can't tell you the number of times that I said that this advocacy game is not short term, it's long term. And anybody that steps in and thinks, well, I'm going to change this right now is, you know, probably deluded. <laughs> it's going to take slow and continuous effort in a direction. And, and like you say, you know, respectful communication, following through on commitments year over year over year, it takes time. And then all of a sudden there's all these opportunities because you, you have, you've already nailed down the respect and trust and you're not you're not going to make somebody else look bad by signing an agreement with you or something. And let's yep. face it, these things won't exist if we don't take them over. Like these fire towers will be gone in no time. If the yep. volunteer community, nonprofit world didn't take these things on these pieces of fantastic pieces of BC forestry history will be lost. Yeah, definitely. And there's, there's other good organizations like some of the quad clubs and that that maintain other ones, but I do want to mention to people, if there is something in your area happening, whether it be a lookout or a rec site or whatever, that you think can use some help, by all means, don't be afraid to step in and, you know, volunteer to work with the association on helping keeping that alive. I mean, and that's exactly what happened with Cornwall, right? I saw in the paper that there, it was going to be demolished. And that's when I made some phone calls and got a hold of the right people to talk to and then brought the association in. And we had that for, what, five years, I think now, right? But it's, it's up to people in that local area. They know what's happening in their area. They know what has the possibility of being torn down or whatever. And the association really, really relies on local volunteers to drive what's going on. It has to be. You're so right. Mount Lavina is the very same thing. One of our yep. members up there, Paul, saw it in a local Pennywise paper that looking for a group to do this. Otherwise, it's going to be torn down and access is going to be lost. So, Exactly. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. So lo- 
local initiative and action with provincial support, with resources and advice and perhaps actions uh, and reputation, you know? Yep. It's yep. all these things. 100%. Are together, so we're, yep. we're trying to, that's the be- best model we've come up with. I think it works well. Now, speaking about Lavina, I got to say, that's got the best view of the three fire lookouts that we deal with by far. So, else, isn't it? you know, if you haven't been to it, oh, folks, if you have not been to it, it's over by Caslow. You got to check it out. The view is just absolutely incredible. Now, the Nahatlich fire lookout near Boston Bar, that I know was the first one that the association took over, but they didn't just take it over. You guys rebuilt that thing from the ground up. Yeah, yeah, crazy. So, Wes, this is in the early days, my very <laughs> early days. In 2011, we had successfully constructed the Hale Creek Shelter, and that was in September. So, beautiful log structure overlooking Harrison Lake, and you know we're pretty, pretty pleased with pulling that one off, and seeing that success, the ministry, the rec, my rec officer at the time said to me, well, we've got this fire tower. It's in disrepair. What do you think about doing a renovation next year? And I said what I have come to be known as saying, sure, we can do that. No problem, whatever. You know, we'll figure it out later. Anyway, over the winter, it it had fallen over, I guess, under the snow load. And we went and saw it and when the snow broke and we could access it and, and it's just nothing but a pile of rubble. So the rec officer's plan was to, they they wanted to refurbish a few of these towers for Forestry's 100th birthday. Right. Well, there's no tower there. So he got together a small budget, something like $25,000. And our organization and another organization called SWAT, Southwest All-Terrain Trails, quad, quad guys that we worked pretty mm-hmm. good with for a lot of years, we took it on. So we had a building a fire tower five or 6,000 feet elevation, long ways away from any power source. It's 40 degrees Celsius this weekend. And, and there's not many things more difficult than doing a project like that when you're organizing trades, equipment, and material and transport on the volunteer dime, right? So yep. you need a framer. You actually need two because one might not be able to show up. So everything you had to have in duplicate because you don't have contracts, you don't have all the things we have in the business world to say, this is going to happen on that. Yeah. So that was quite a thing. We we managed over, I think it was five weekends over two months that we pretty much had that thing finished. Yep. From, from beginning to end with painted, sealed up, you know, lock up, well, not lock up because it's been open ever since it's open to anybody go to visit. But uh, yeah, spectacular project. You know, we had a, a friend of mine from the cruiser club is a professional chef and we've utilized him. We kind of tripped over it as these projects happened that him and my wife, she just assisted and they took care of all the food, which freed 30, 40, 50 people up from making their own food, which creates an awful lot of free time to work. (laughs) So, so we had the crews working and we're fed like Kings and there's nothing better than doing something for somebody else, you know, for no reason, eating like a king in the fresh air, you know, yep. a couple of refreshments. It, it's it, spectacular. As you know, spectacular stuff. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful lookout. And I know there's maintenance on it every year to keep it looking that way for sure. One thing I do want to mention too is there is maintenance days for the fire lookouts. There's maintenance days for the rec sites and such. Now, if people do happen to see that come up on whether it be on Facebook main group or their local group or wherever, don't be afraid about showing up because, or don't be afraid that, hey, you're not a framer or you're not a carpenter or you're not a painter or whatever. There's always work to do. And the leader for that day will assign you work. And what I've found is that, you know, we've actually at, at Cornwall, for example, we've had locals come up that are not part of the association, but they just want to come up and help. And we've seen some friendships form that have now become, you know, three, four, five year long friendships that have been formed because they didn't know anybody, but they just showed up to help. And so you're not only getting friendship, but you're also, like you say, out in the fresh air and you're helping a good cause. And if you're interested to show up and we'll put you to work. Tell you, you know, in my, geez, 15, 16 years in the association, that accounts for a good period of the time I've been in the backcountry. I've, almost all of my close friendships are from this world. I've seen so many people come into this recreation, build friend groups that are core to their lives, you know, and this is not uncommon or just happens once in a while. It happens all the time. Yeah. I see it again and again and again, and I look around at the friend groups that I see and it's, it's something else, Wes, you know, that's a, Another of the intangible parts or, or value that is gained and you don't even notice, you know, just from debating in this particular world, you know, we have pretty good, we have a really good group and it definitely impacts people's lives. So, so speaking of that, there's, I know at the coast, you guys do some different runs. So there's the newbie runs and a few other things. And I know there's been a few of those other events around the interior as well. And I think those are a great idea. So whether it be something that, whether you classify it as a newbie run or, or however you want to classify whatever run that you're, that people are organizing, I think that's a great way for getting people out and introducing and, and meeting other people. It's well, it totally is. I'll give you some advice and for anybody who listens to this. If you want a lot of people to come to a, your run, call it a newbie run. If you don't want a lot of people to come to your run, call it a maintenance run. Right? <laughs> oh, we're going to do work. Well, maybe we won't get so many people. No, I'm, I'm kind of kidding. <laughs> kind of not. But yeah, we get quite a bit done. We always used to call these, what was it? I inherited the West Harrison run. So beginner stock run, BSR, beginner stock run, maintenance run. So we had like initially in like 2006, seven, we had four or five recreation sites up west harrison for a service road so it made yep. sense to run a maintenance run up there so get people out new people out and then drop in and you know pick up some garbage make the place look nice lovely saturday out you know it's a great thing it's a lot of fun it's when it's still running today same time same place yeah and well known and popular but yeah it works pretty good again these things have to be run by locals and i think we we see We've seen them in Prince George. We've seen them. There was one to Windfall Creek up in the Chetwind. I know we're start, going to start seeing them in the Okanagan. Yep. And we, we see yeah, them we, in we, we, Island too. Yep. Yeah, we've had a few around here as well too in the Camels area. Corey did one last year and 
it's it's a great way for people to meet other like-minded people. So one of the, the neat programs that the association has is a Wheeling Wisely program. So speaking of people new to four-wheeling or even for those old guys like myself and yourself, what is Wheeling Wisely and what, what's it all about? Well, Wheeling Wisely is our invention of an off-road driver and recovery training program. So way back in the four-wheel drive association days, a man named Henry Gillick essentially built the driver's education program in concert with the BC Driving Council of those days. We're talking late 70s, early 80s. And the Orange Binder. Was, I have one of those. <laughs> oh, the Orange Binder? Yeah, I've got, yeah, one, I've got one of those. Like yeah. So for many years, we had a line item in our budget, education, $2,000, like a lot of money, 2000 because we didn't have any money. Yep. And it was always there, but we never got to it because we were busy building foundation footings for the, the organization. You know, everything from websites to to doing stuff like building Hale Creek and the Hatlatch to, you know, tangible things. So it took us a while to get to it. And finally, we hired an organization called the International Four-Wheel Drive Trainers Association in 2018 to come up and we had a cadre of 17 people that we trained to then build some driving programs, some recovery programs, and then start delivering that to our members. So we did that. We've got two programs completed. So we've got a, a basic driver training program. So this is aimed at people that are new to off-road driving, kind of as a square one, you know, a 101 program. And we have a basic recovery program, which actually has intermediate, a lot of intermediate concepts. They both do, frankly. These are one day program each. So a driver program is one day, eight hours, same thing for recovery. And we've got an awful lot of information, maybe even too much information in each of these days. But the, the plus side is that even experienced wheelers like you and I have the ability to take this program and come home, not with just one, but, you know, a handful of things that we probably didn't know about our vehicle yep. or picking a line or, or communicate, what have you. Yeah. So since 2019, we launched our first training program for our members. That was in the Prince George area. And since in the last three years, I think we've trained over 400 now. Wow. So uh, I'm really pleased because we only train 17 instructors. Of those 17, I think we've got 11 or 12 still active. So that's yeah. really good retention as well because, you know, life changes, right? You know, 100%. Yeah. You have to be conscious of that in the volunteer world all the time because life isn't easy for anyone and things can change in a moment and change a worldview or a setting, you know, anyway. 400 people have been trained and we're now trying to make the next step to train the next cadre of trainers so that we can start multiplying. We, we can't, we can't hold enough courses in the lower mainland because demand is so high. So we need more instructors and we need more instructors province wide because again, we need to deliver to the regions, you know, because we, we, yeah, not, not, not everybody at the coast can come up to the 
up to Prince George to, to train or to no, no, it's teach too hard. the courses and that, right? It's so a day's drive <laughs> each way. Yeah. So we're trying to build out our resources in the impossible world that we find ourselves in, like I say. But somehow, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, they're definitely popular from everything that I've seen that they're booked up way in advance. But I think, as you mentioned, there's stuff that people have been wheeling for years when you can gather new information from this and or that things that we forget about. There's a lot of times, like when I sold my Jeep TJ and gone to the Xterra, I had to learn how to drive all over again. And then same thing with going into the Tacoma. Well, different vehicles handle differently. And when you're going from a locked vehicle into a stock vehicle, everything's different. And But it, I think it's a great course for anybody that is out in the back roads, for sure. Well, and, and at the end of the day, the reason why we wanted to rebuild our education program was because we're seeing vehicles that are sold are very, very capable. Yep. So people without much knowledge can get themselves into a, a whole lot of trouble. And then now they're in really difficult and or dangerous situation. The weather turns anything and uh, there's a lot of opportunity for disaster. So we, we just saw that coming and we want to do what we can for our membership to give them at least a fighting chance. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Coming out of the bush and coming home to their family and the people to love. Yeah. And I think it's a great thing of doing it on the same weekend, do the basic, the one-on-one on the Saturday and doing the recovery on the Sunday, just so that way you're only taking up one weekend of not only the trainer's time, but of the participant's time. And hopefully they can retain, you know, 80% of what they're taught. Right. So. Or, you know, I don't know about you. I've taken a lot of intense courses, you know, like cram factory stuff. Yeah. And, you know, you don't, I don't even think you come up with 80%, but that's okay. Because it's it's like the saying, you know what you know, and you know what you don't know, but what you don't know you don't know is going to kill you. Yeah. So we try to move each of those up a, a layer, right? So at least you know what you don't know. And then you've got some reason to base your decision on, maybe I'm going to turn around. So there's another program that I find quite interesting that I haven't had much involvement with myself, but that's the Wheelers of Tomorrow. And you touched based earlier on about the kids and building the raft. And that's sort of what, from my understanding, Wheelers of Tomorrow is, is getting those kids out and learning to, you know, about joining the outdoors and responsibility and stuff like that. Maybe you can fill us a bit more about the, the Wheelers of Tomorrow. Sure. One of my longtime colleagues, my right-hand person, so to speak, for a lot of years is Chris Wheeler. Yep. He's taken care of so many different things. Critical, critical volunteer. She always wanted to get a kids program going. And our goals when we looked at the program were, of course, to get kids out four by four. So we used to have big sisters, big brothers run. Or we'd, we'd take kids out for a day, do a little bit of four by flooring. And you know, as well as anyone, a person's first four by four trip where you, you do some real gnarly stuff, which is not that gnarly, but it doesn't matter. You get the ear to ear grin, right? Yep. You get the best day of my life, which is probably why people are so attracted to the friends they meet in their first trips, mm-hmm. but it's a spectacular day. It's a special memory and it will be there for a long time. We did runs with 
burnfund.org and burn survivors. Three of those now we've we've done over the last 10 years. Again, spectacular, where you take kids that have never been out for a four-by-four four ride and, you know, maybe a barbecue lunch or something like that. <clears throat> spectacular. So we wanted to combine events like this with maybe some wheeling families inside of our organization, maybe get families out together so they can meet like-minded people and enjoy this recreation like you and I. So we do things like at, at the park, you know, you come out and you just have a, a picnic, uh, maybe a dunk tank and bouncy castle. And we just have some fun things like that. We tried one of those. A lot of these things have been interrupted by COVID. So I don't mean to say we tried one of those and it just stopped, but right. a black hole in between here and there that, kind of slowed things down. You know, we did the the wheeling and picnic event. There's been sleepover and movie night wheeling this year. There there was a number that have been rained out, like I'm talking three inches of rain overnight rained out. We we, um, we don't have that problem up here. We we don't know what rain yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. yeah. And we also kind of saw an, another aspect, Wes, to be honest, was for many years doing our cleanups, we would come across, you know, the, the typical party waste or, or God forbid, a grad camp. And I know I can remember, it's a long time ago and it's foggy, but when I was young, we didn't exactly have everything figured out. And when you were graduating high school, it was kind of a, you know, there was a party involved there that, that kind of ended childhood and then you were an adult and there's a transition period there. So I've read in the news here numerous times where somebody comes across a grad camp waste and they see grad from whatever high school and then they publicly shame them. And then I've seen cases where the school has gone so far as to cancel the grad dance and, and then shaming the kids. And we know that we're only dealing with a subset here. And we also know, or at least I do, what I see is I can just see everybody getting up in the morning in various states of feeling awful and being the last one, you know, kind of like a musical chairs thing. You're up and it's a big mess and you just want to go home. You go home and then all this shit hits the media and there's nothing you can do about it. You, God knows how you got there. Anyway, I always hated that. I hated yeah. that. So, we thought we could, in our perfect world, we would reach out to high schools and perhaps assist them with a plan. Well, the hell is this for naive? They could assist them with a plan and other adults wouldn't go, you're facilitating youth drinking and all this stuff. Well, this stuff's going to happen anyway. We know it. Yep. Imagine a grad camp going with a washroom plan, a garbage pickup plan, probably a first aid plan and, and some silver transport in case something happened yep. near remote in the bush, you know, a food plan, even, you know, like a water plan. It, it wouldn't hurt. I don't think, I think it would go a long way to not only let them have their rite of passage, but also let them come through without being publicly shamed. And then perhaps the crowning of their graduation, their prom isn't canceled, you know, like, that stuff just horrifies me. Yeah, agree with you on that. And I think what you're talking about having some sort of a plan is definitely a right step in the right direction. It's just a matter of getting people behind it, and it'll just take time. Well, and you can't get your parents to help you. No, <laughs> no, right? I mean, like 
So it might be nice to have some adults at least recognize <laughs> that, well, there's probably a better way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, a bit of a sidetrack, but <laughs> we haven't got that one off the ground yet. But. I think it's a great idea, but I think going back to the whole other stuff that you are currently have been doing with the the wheelers of tomorrow, definitely getting some of these young kids out. As you know, I grew up in a four by four family and every time I saw a lifted Jeep or something like that, my smile was so, so big, right? So get these kids hooked now and eventually they'll become future members and so hopefully hey, we've got an RC car club. Oh yeah. That's you know, four by four RCs and stuff yeah. that's joining up as a member club. That is awesome. Well, they've got the West Coast Scale Trail that they've been building by Eagle Mountain. Yeah. And they've come out to a couple of our events, our show and shine this year and our toy run and set up RC courses. And so the kids are just glued on this stuff. Like, this is cool, man. Yep. So here you've got the little trucks going and you've got the big (laughs) trucks in the field. And that is awesome. It's not just young kids are hooked on those things either. It's a lot of adults are totally into those. Well, I say young kids, they're they're under 30 now, aren't they? That's true. (laughs) No offense to all the young young kids, sorry. (laughs) It's funny, we've got, there's a few rock crawl, you know, RC guys here in in Kamloops. And Dion Rosser is one of them. And his detail that he builds, he 3D prints these little things. And he did a, like a 22RE motor that had, even like the little details on it of like the PCV valve and all like his detail that he does in the crawler little cars is just absolutely insane. You know, it's all these little bolts. You look at the valve cover and you can see every single individual bolt and something wrong with these people. I don't have you the know, patience for that myself. I, I but. look at the guys that, you know, I've got a, a good friend, well, a number of them that build like refurbishments of, of antique vehicles. Yeah. And their attention to detail is just sickening. I don't know how they do it. You know, I wheel my stuff and, and I live in a yeah. rainforest and like these things are not achievable. <laughs> Yet I see it and I don't, I just, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have the patience for some of that stuff myself, but, but that's a whole other thing too. Is, is, you know, let's go back to the, to the show and shine. That's something we haven't talked about. So you guys have a big show and shine every August, I think, July or August. July, in yeah, every July. Yeah, every July. And I think when I, I didn't go down last year, but the years that I did go down, I think you guys are pushing, what, 350 or 400 vehicles yep. for the yeah, show. I think 450 was our highest one year. Yeah. Um, about 1,000 people, 450 trucks, 400 trucks, yeah. Yep. So obviously we're going to go full bore with plans for that again this year. Yeah, July 15th. Oh, perfect. <laughs> right through River Heritage Park. Yeah. If you guys do have the chance to attend it, it's definitely worth it. You meet a lot of people that are four-wheel enthusiasts. There's some of the supporting vendors are there. There's door prizes. Door prizes galore. And, you know, you buy a bunch of tickets and hopefully you come away with uh, some really good prizes. There's winches given away. There's, you know, there's fridges there's all kinds of like it's probably some tires you know <laughs> yeah, tents rooftop tents tents yeah rooftop tents and and, and that's that's well, not the only reason for going it's 
watery, right? It's going there to check out the other vehicles. You've got, you know, you've got the mud bog guys there. You've got the Jeep guys, the Nissan guys, and it's vehicles that you don't normally see as well, right? There's some very show quality vehicles that are there. And nice work for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you're starting to see people come from other areas, you know, from Kamloops or Kelowna or Merritt or whatever. So you're seeing other vehicles that you don't see all the time. So yeah. 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 They're starting to come from farther away. We had one fellow from Texas. Wow. After the BC Overland rally. Yeah. Yeah, The draw is amazing. It's the best draw that I've seen for, for these one day shows. Yeah, draw is so good that I consider resigning because I can't buy tickets. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I I just I've been blown away the couple times I have been down, and like I say, even if you're from the interior, it's worth making that trip down and make a weekend out of it. You know, with you know with the wife or whatever, and and it, yeah, it, it's a lot of fun and a lot of really neat vehicles and some really cool prizes for sure. So. You're also a board member of the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC, are you not? Yes, sir. So I know that we've been talking more about the Full Drive Association of BC, but let's maybe talk quickly about the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC and what that group is all about. So the Outdoor Recreation Council of British Columbia is a provincial organization representing provincial recreation organizations, essentially. So four-wheel drive association of BC is a member, same as ATV BC, BC Off-Road Motorcycle Association, Snowmobile Federation, Federation of Mountain Clubs, Trails BC, Nature Hiking Groups, Biking Groups, Mountain Biking, Kayaking. The Horse People. Yeah, Horse Council BC, Back of the Horse. But really all the groups. And then there's regional clubs, so local clubs that aren't a provincial organization. They're not voting members, but we still represent them. And the goal is with the Outdoor Recreation Council is to look at recreation at a high level that impacts all recreation and then advocates on behalf of them to government. So it's difficult to find the dividing line of where like a member club, like a four-wheel drive association should take care of your interests and where the Outdoor Recreation Council should look out for your interests. There's always work on those margins, but so we work on things like the provincial trails advisory body and the provincial trails plan that been an ongoing creation that's never really matured, but it's been around for about 10 years. So the outdoor rec council co-chairs that with the representatives from government, we're working on trying to figure out what recreation is sorry reconciliation is and how to approach it so we can kind of advise our members on protocol and perhaps i don't want to use the word strategy but just a way of engaging and building relationship so that you're talking about trails or rec sites that you're not starting from scratch with with wanting something right better to build a relationship and then work with a group than or a nation than to just dive in and say, I need this or I want this. I'd have to flip through my notes to think of what I was <laughs> working on. But it's really what that is. It's looking at lobbying rec sites and trails or lobbying BC parks or lobbying the government for funding for those agencies because they're notoriously underfunded. Yep. So it's I, like, I think it really 
brings to the forefront of our earlier conversation about working together with other organizations. So whether they be the hikers or the mountain bikers, I mean, obviously in some of your meetings, I'm sure there's various different opinions, but it's the fact of working together and building that relationship for all outdoor recreation you know, users. Yeah. Well, con, we, <laughs> there's no shortage of conflict in the world. And if you don't have a relationship with your neighbor and something arises, it's really difficult to get over, to build a relationship while you're in conflict. Yeah. However, if you have a pretty good relationship, a little bit of conflict you generally deal with respectfully and timely. And the same case applies to recreation groups because everyone knows that in the backcountry, you know, we all have almost the very same interests. You know, I've, I've often commented that you'd be hard pressed to tell the difference or who was the non-motorized advocate and who was the motorized advocate. If, if me and my truck was beside the president of the North Shore Mountain Bike Association in his truck. Because we both have Toyota 4x4s with rooftop tents and way too much stuff, but he might have a bike. And he's the mountain biker and I'm the 4x4 guy. Yet, you know, one thing I always stress in these environments is every recreationist utilizes a four-wheel drive vehicle to access his trailhead or her mm-hmm. trailhead. Yep. Or a Subaru. Right? Yep. And this is a fact. So no matter whether you hike, kayak, climb mountains, deal with horses or quads or motorcycles, you've got a four by four vehicle and that's carting your stuff to where you want to do your recreation. Yep. We're all really the same. We had a really good conversation last week with the guys from Overland North, which is an Overland Expo style festival in Ontario. They've got three of those in Ontario. And they said that they're seeing a lot of like van life people and they're seeing a real mix of people at their events. And we're discussing how the average four-wheel drive user is not just out there four-wheeling. They're, they might be camping, you know, take like myself, you know, I'll be camping, I'll be hiking, I'll be kayaking, I'll be mountain biking, whatever. And so the average four-wheeler or overlander say is not just doing one thing a lot of them are doing multiple things even on the same weekend. And that's just exactly to your point that, you know, they said that a lot of times he's one guy's talking to his neighbor and he's, Hey, what's this overland thing? And then the guy's a mountain biker and they're talking about things. And he's like, okay, yeah, I guess actually I'm a overlander, (laughs) you know, cause he's doing all, he's he's doing all these things. Right. So I'm a kayaker. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. I got one of those, (laughs) but yeah, it's, it really, brings a point home that you know a lot of these we all are doing so many different hobbies that you know for our recreation right what do we identify with and and i guess we're just kind of weird we identify with the four by four part of it as well rather rather than other people look at that as what a tool to access their trailhead yep yeah well surprise surprise that's the same thing so Speaking of conflict, I've heard through the rumor mill that you were building a land cruiser with an electric motor. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I don't have any electric motors. I, I'm not <laughs> opposed to it. There you I go. Drove, I just drove a Rivian. Oh, yeah? What do you I think? I drove a Rivian down in New Mexico, and it is some kind of machine. Yeah. I, I want to drive one. I, 
I'm really interested in this. I don't like the fact that they're pushing it on us, but I'm really, I am interested in an electric vehicle segment. Yeah. Well, if, if, and when it works for range, you know, I, I'd be hard pressed to get out of my manual diesel, (laughs) my range. Yeah. Yeah. I I can go in the mountains and with the same amount of fuel as a gasser, I've got near twice the time to run my vehicle because we're not doing miles per gallon anymore. We're doing hours per whatever. Yep. Hours yep. of runtime. But the, the the electrical vehicles are getting close if they're anything like the Rivian. So I happen to know a couple of the guys that were translating how four by fours should work and feel to the programming engineers that were feeding information into the computers of the truck. Oh yeah. So that was an important part to get the feel and the movement of and the coordination of all the electrics to make it feel like an actual four by four, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I have heard is that some of the people with, you know, the four by XE Jeeps or, or other vehicles that do have electric power is that they, it's a little bit of a different driving experience because it's instant torque. And there's a few things that they have to learn to, to drive again, but you, you take a look at a Rivian where there's four motors and the fact that, you know, you can basically be locked, right? So it's it's going to be interesting. The next 10 years is really going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see if they can get that, that for lack of better terms, mileage up yep, between the charges. Um, yeah. But it's pretty close now. And it's, yep. it's really weird to have all your vehicle systems on a tablet and in the dash <laughs> and you're just kind of wandering around on the desktop to find you know off-road mode or rally mode or you know, kind of crazy stuff do i want to do here it's uh, it's going to be interesting for us old guys to sit there and figure it out <laughs> where's the radio <laughs> yeah, exactly well i want buttons i want big bulky buttons <laughs> yeah. Yeah, i like the volume like it yeah exactly it was it was hard enough getting used to the push start on my tacoma but i have to admit i not, i like not having the keys rattle around all the time so yeah i'm okay with that bouncing off a little bit more off topic when you're out camping, what kind of food do you eat? Are you like a, do you eat better than you do at home? Or are you like a, a guy like G from BC where he sits there around the campfires eating sausage? I'm blessed to eat well all the time. So at home we eat very well and camping, I also eat very well. I like to, I like cooking outside. Yeah. So I learned how to cook before I left the house when I was a kid. So. I have half a chance and that's and my good. My friend has taught me quite a bit as well. So yeah, I, I do have my cast frying pan and I do cook salmon and rice or, or steak or ribs or nice. I look a bit on the carnivore side. So <laughs> no, that's great. It's, and it, a lot of it just comes down to some of the prep and stuff like that. Right. So it, myself, I'm sometimes I'm really good like that. And then some days I'm craft dinner. <laughs> well, indeed, sometimes time crunches. So yeah, I also yeah. have some canned goods for, you know, I have three days emergency stash of food in my truck at all times. So yep. I have canned salmon or I have chili or I have what have you and some soups. Yeah. Well, it's a cold morning and I don't really feel like cooking and I want to get on the road, you know, I'll, maybe I'll make a soup because it warms yep. me up or, right? Late arrival at camp, you know, you got to do what you got to do. 
Yeah, you don't have the hour to cook or whatever, right? So we are going to have a couple guys on probably in the next month or two that are chefs. And they're going to go through some camp cooking ideas. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that because I can always gain more knowledge in cooking for sure. Yeah, well, I like cooking and I love eating, so... There you go. <laughs> Usually do fairly well, you know, off off grid cooking. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. So the last question we ask every guest is, what Canadian would you like to listen to on the Four Before Canada podcast? Well, what Canadian would I like to listen to? Mm. Well, I mentioned a name earlier. You're hard to get a hold of Henry Gillick. He's in his yes. 80s, I think. Yeah, heck of a character. I'm sure Henry's got. T- you know, he's got 30 years of stories, 30, 40 years of stories. Yeah. I see him mostly every year at the BC Sportsman Show. Yeah. He'll come by the booth and see how the four wheel drive association is doing because he was heavily invested for, must have been close to two decades. So, yeah. So I, I guess I'll, I'll stick with Henry. He, he's yep. a heck of a- yeah. He'd be a really interesting guy. I agree. He'd be a really interesting guy to talk to based on his, not only his four wheel drive experience, but like you say, creating the driver program and just the general years that he put into the association. He'd be yeah, founding member and yeah. education director for ages. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually one of the reasons that I, I created the podcast was to talk to some of our elders and to preserve some of the stories. You know, I'm talking to Roger Manson. Green. Bob Green, that's another guy on my list for sure. And I was up talking to, although I didn't record it, but I was up talking to Rocky Weinstein the other day and uh, about his Jeeps and dune buggies. And after Al passed away, who was a former president of the association, he passed away last summer. It just got me really thinking that, you know, like my dad's passed away and Al passed away. And a lot of these guys are starting to get older and they're starting to go by the wayside. So I think we really need to talk to them and and save some oral history from them so well good on you Wes for doing this I know I mentioned it in passing before we had similar idea and COVID kind of got in the way yep and and we just I just haven't gotten the initiative so good on you for for doing this well thank you it's been a learning curve but that's the thing as long as we're always learning right so but and, and I also wanted to showcase organizations like the Full Drive Association of BC, as well as Canadian businesses, you know, TMR Racing in Ontario or, you know, Sky Tents or any of those companies, because I think we really need to support Canadian companies. Well, totally. It's a big thing. Ontario Federation of Four Field Drive, do you have anybody there? I have tried contacting them, but I have not gotten any response. So I think Peter Wood is their president? Okay. Good guy to talk to as well. Yeah. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll try getting a hold of him as well too. Cause I think they're, you know, same sort of concept of what we're doing here. I think the Florida Association is got a bit more members and some other things going on, but they've really got some neat projects back there with, you know, they do a lot of maintenance with the snowmobile trails and, and other trails out there as well. So they if you guys are in ontario if you're listening in you're ontario definitely look up the these guys because they're trying to save our trails and our access to public lands as well yeah so, quite active yeah so yeah good group to support well kim thank you very much for coming on once again we're talking to kim reeves the president of the Drive association of bc 
And we definitely thank you and appreciate you coming on and spend some time with us. Well, thanks a lot, Wes. Thanks for having me and I appreciate your time.